Welcome to the Identity Talk for Educators Live podcast, the show for the unsung heroes of education. I'm your host, Kwame Sarfamensa, and on this podcast, I highlight the unspoken and unsung heroes who are changing the education game as we know it. Every day, I come across the work of so many incredible educators who simply don't get the recognition they deserve. So on this podcast, we will provide you, the audience, with an opportunity to learn the personal stories of these incredible educators and the specific elements that shape who they are in and out of the classroom. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Good evening, good people. Welcome to a brand new episode of Identity Talk for Educators Live, the show for the unsung heroes of education. I'm your host, Kwame Sarfamensa. If this is your first time tuning in to the podcast, we welcome you. We hope that you return for more dope content. And if you are a returning viewer or listener of the podcast, we welcome you back. And I thank you for always coming back for more content. Uh, just last week, we hit 5,000 downloads, and it's all because of folks like you all who believe in the content, support the content, and share it with everybody in the world. So for my new people who are in here, please make sure that you subscribe to the YouTube channel, which is under my name, Kwame Salfamensa. But this is where we house all of the Identity Talk content uh, from the short videos to our podcast episodes. So Make sure you click that red subscribe button to get notifications on when new episodes come out. Thank you kindly. And now I want to jump right into our conversation. So tonight's guest is a good friend of mine, good brother, who is a high school math teacher. But he is out here fighting for liberation, fighting for social justice. And, you know, we speak the same language when it comes to anti-racism and and what we need to do to build that solidarity amongst each other uh, to make things equitable within our education space. So I'm just happy to have this conversation with his brother, and he's going to go ahead and just share the great work he's doing with Liberation Lab and, and everything else that's going on with them. So without further ado, I want to bring on the good brother, Mr. Bobby Morgan, to the podcast. So let's get it in. What's up, man? What's going on, Quan? It's man. good to be here, man. Yeah, man. It's an honor to finally have you. This is uh this is like the big leagues, man. I feel like I got called up. Oh, uh, come on, bro. Come <laughs> on, bro. You 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 already major, man. You already major leagues in my book. You already major leagues. You're doing some dope work, which I'm happy that you're you're here to talk about. So let's go right in, man. We want to we want to make sure that people get to know who you are. So question I'd like to ask all my guests is to just tell us a little bit about yourself and what ultimately brought you into the field of education. Yeah. So uh, my name is Bobby Morgan. Uh, I have been in education uh, for the last 12 years. Uh, what brought me to education? Honestly, it was this intersection of what I believe like where all my gifting kind of lies. I think being passionate about young people and being um, 
effective in communication, at least, you know, attempting to be and, um, and seeing what happened just through volunteer work as a young person, coaching basketball, doing different things for young people. It was always something that I was passionate about and, and loved. Uh, funny story is when I originally went to college, I was going to do industrial design uh, as like a math guy. I, I thought like, this is going to be good. I'd like to draw. This is great. Um, and then I got to college and I really, it was a competing uh, task between playing basketball because all the studio hours were at night. And then, um, and then the other option was to be an educator. And I was like, oh, well, absolutely. Let's be an educator. So I went to a school in North Jersey, Kane University. And uh, and so graduated there in 2008. Uh, I didn't get into the education field till maybe about two years later. I spent some time with some nonprofit work. And uh, yeah, man, it was there that I really just began to grow, develop and really cherish what it is to be an educator. Wow. So you mentioned basketball. So were you playing at the intramural level or are you trying to like play on the college team? So I, I actually got recruited to play. This is Division three basketball, so you need to play for the love of the game. Um, but then two years in, Bill's caught up, and I said, man, listen, I got to work. And so I stepped off the team to work full-time and, and uh, you know, try to make ends meet for myself while I was in college. Oh, man, they didn't hook you up with a scholarship, though? No, nah, not a D3, brother. They said, listen, <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you're here. All right, cool. We could we could uh, table the basketball talk for much later on. Yes, sir. But here's what I want to know: uh, the past year and a half to two years have been very difficult for educators all across the globe. So, what I'm interested in knowing from you is, in what ways has COVID nineteen transformed you as an educator, uh, as a father, and as a husband? Whew. That's a good one, Quam. Um, I think that COVID has shown me uh, areas that I need to grow, right? I think that when you are in a space where work, home, and everything is kind of just in one area, it forces you to, to, to have to grow in areas of how do I serve well when I am a teacher? How do I serve well as a husband? How do I serve well as a father? And all those things kind of converged um, very quickly with, with COVID-19. Particularly as an educator, I was in a space where we were virtual for much of the year. We didn't go back until maybe uh, a month before school ended. And it was during that time that you learn a lot because when you, as an educator, when you're highest ethic is control. And then you have to be in a virtual space where kids could just easily just hit a button and not talk to you anymore. You have to be better than I need you to be here because I said so. Right. And that was never really me. I always want to inspire kids to want to be around. I want to, I want them to know that I care and I want them to see that I see their brilliance when they come in. And so, um, it forces you to have to adapt in, in various ways. It forces you to have to, um, be very cognizant of the economy of language, right? right? Speaking too much in the digital space is just not the best move for you. And so for me, uh, COVID has taught me how to be a better educator by being patient. It has taught me how to be a better 
husband by being compassionate and it's taught me how to be a better father by being present. All right. That, that makes all the sense in the world, but especially the patience part. Um, I mean, talking in front of a lot of black screens because students don't want to turn the cameras on and you teach high school. So I know it's even worse there. I was a middle school math teacher. So it's like, all right, you, yeah, man, you know, what's, you know, what's funny is I actually taught, I've been teaching middle school um, for, for much of my career. I didn't, I didn't, I stepped into high school to coach basketball, but I w- I've been a middle school educator for forever. Um, and, and much like you said, I am literally logging on and I just see, I had to, I had to push them and encourage them to put up a picture that symbolizes themselves just so that I can see something. Cause I just got tired of looking at black boxes and then saying something and it being like a seance, you know, uh, it's like, Edwin, are you here? I, I do. I, or do you hear me, Edwin? Like, can you mute and unmute real quick just to let me know that you hear me? Like it was, it was very, very, very difficult, but it was always, it's always this convergence of things, right? Because there are some educators that are like, no, I need you to turn your cameras on. And that's what we're going to do. I even know that there, there are some schools that were making kids show up in uniform during COVID. Right. And you think about that. Yeah. That's crazy, man. Why? Right. And they're, they're in their homes. (laughs) How you going to police them in their homes? And and so the the kid, the kids would tell me like, you know, cause I, you know, I've, I've built kind of like a rapport with some of the kids in the area. And so they would tell me like, no, nah, so-and-so down at this school, they, they still have to wear their uniforms or, 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 or things like that. And, and, and the kids are so trained and so quote unquote programmed that they were like, Mr. Morgan, can I go to the bathroom? And I'm like, yo, I'm in your home. Just, just tell me you're going and go <laughs> like, I don't understand. Right. And so you have to, you have to be very cognizant of, of where, how kids show up. And what you have to do to empower them in a very new world that puts their their control is a little bit higher. And so you can't you can't get off. Well, you have to be here because this is just the schedule. Right. Because they can make their own schedule. Right. You have to inspire them to want to be there. And so uh, absolutely. Yeah. I think there lies a distinction between schooling and education. Yes, sir. Because with schooling you are programmed to have to follow and comply with protocols and yeah. procedures, but education can happen anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the biggest shift too, is seeing educators, you know, feel like that, that kids were only learning as long as they were in your zoom. No, like learning takes place outside of the classroom. Right. Learning takes place in their in their, their experiences, um, you know, and, and I think the better we can connect to what we do in the classroom with what happens outside the classroom, the more holistic our educational approach should be. No, I agree. And would you agree with me when I say that education is the one space where a lot of fancy terms and jargon that we put out there is just common sense? Yes. Like, like when we talk, like what you just mentioned right there, how the world around us is a classroom. That is what we call experiential learning. Right. Why do we need to call experiential learning? Right. It's not 
we overcomplicate things with these terms. Um, even with culture responsive pedagogy, we're responding to the culture of the students. Yeah. yeah. Like, just like, you know, we're parents. Right. If we're planning a birthday party, just as an example, we're thinking about what our children like. Yeah. We're, we're thinking about what they dislike because we're not trying to waste money. So we're taking into account our children's profile and, and their skills and their their interests, their hobbies, in order to get the most thoughtful gift, in order to plan the most incredible party, right? Why can't we translate that into our classrooms? And this transcends race. It really does. If you really, if you really think about it, but it just goes, but it just goes to say that I think in education, we tend to overcomplicate things that I believe are simple or, or, or common sense. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, I had to do a paper actually for my, for my classes, I'm taking master's classes currently. Yeah. And one of the papers I had to do, I had to talk about, so my, my I chose to dive into student voice and curriculum. Okay. And I couldn't just say we should really be listening to students because they have to sit there and learn it. And so why don't we connect the what we teach with how they learn and do it better that way? I can't just say that. I have to go out and say, well, you know, the constructivist theory of education states that, you know, uh, that the experience that students must connect their newer learning to their previously attained learning so that they can. Right. I have to say all that stuff. It's like, why? Why can't I just tell you that it should matter? Oh, my goodness. You're, Why can't I just tell you that, that, that students, you know, should be taking charge of their learning? Matter of fact, why can't I just say that students should know how they learn so that we can be partners in education versus you coming in? And I think that's what we've done in education. I said this in my paper was that we've built a restaurant like thing where they have to come in and be served or at least not be served, but you, you, I'm going to demand that you sit down and eat whatever I'm giving you. And then we say, well, why aren't they responding in the ways that we desire? Why aren't they empowered? Why don't they, why, why aren't our student outcomes the way we want them to be? It's like, well, if you, if they're an afterthought, then why in the world would they, it matter to them? Wow. I love how you just used a food metaphor to pretty much talk about an anti-frarian approach to teaching <laughs> like that's that's just crazy but as you're talking about teacher voice and, and student voice right i don't know how it is in new jersey as far as how you all get evaluated and observed but is there a uh, system where you are required to submit artifacts and you have to type up rationales for artifacts that demonstrate that you are teaching and you probably have a rubric that you're referring to that has the language that you need to articulate the learning the teaching that you're actually doing i know i i know we had to do that in massachusetts and it was pretty much a lot of uh empty jargon to appease the folks who are evaluating you. 
And did you did y'all use uh Danielson? The Danielson rubric or not? <sighs> no, but I know they've used it in the past, but at least in the time that I was there, we weren't using Danielson. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So my time at public school, we used the, the, the Danielson model. And so, yeah, I had to submit all these artifacts and talk about all the things that I was doing and the time that I spent. And then in my time in charter school, it was something called the TNTP rubric. And so what wound up happening was it's kind of similar, right? It was just like they said it was student facing um, stuff. So like how many students were on task, uh, how many students asked the question, how many students like, and so I was getting graded on how well the students were responding to X, Y, and Z. And part of it is I'm, I'm necessarily being assessed on how well I can tell you that I did versus actually evaluating what it is that I'm doing, right? You know, who the teachers are who are making a difference in kids' lives. Like that's not rocket sciences. You you can go in and and literally ask the, the students, right? Who's who are teachers that really, man, you know, and they'll tell you, they'll tell you like this, you know, if you're a solid, I think Principal Rod told me this, you go into a room and and teach, uh, students would be like, nah, this person ain't gonna cut it. Like they know. They know. They know. And so, I think it's very interesting that what we do is assess how effective our teaching is based upon how, how I articulate what it is that I'm doing versus actually doing the thing. Right. How do you, how do you really know that I'm a good educator? Well, because I put it down on a piece of paper and stated that I was doing X, Y, and Z and blah, blah, blah. Like why? Exactly. Um, Exactly. But it doesn't, I don't think it moves the needle. Would you, would you agree with that? Like that? No. Not at all. all. But I think that's the problem, though. We rely more on a rubric, which is rooted in whiteness. Let's keep it real. It's rooted in whiteness when we talk about compliance. Compliance manifested in how students listen, how quiet they are in class. What if that evaluator came into a classroom and the kids were noisy, but it was productive chaos, if if you will. Yeah. They're engaged. They're yeah. having discussions. Yeah. Right? They're active. Yeah. Does that align with what the rubric says? Or do we rely on the interpretation that the evaluator makes with regard to how they read that rubric? You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So I think you're making some very valid points. And what it comes down to is we don't listen to our students enough. We rely more on the rubric than we do uh, to student testimony. It is, it is almost like I have to turn my back on students and teach to the administrators behind me. Right. And if I teach to the administrators behind me and they see all the elements of an effective lesson, was my did I have my my do now? Did I have a, 
a hook? Did I pull them in with my hook? Did I then get right to how 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 much time before I got into the lesson? How much time before I transitioned to the bulk of the lesson? Where were my checks for understanding? And I have to do this dog and pony show in order to kind of show forth to the administrators that I'm an effective teacher. And it's like, but maybe that day the students were having a hard time and we just stopped for a second, took a pause, and we talked about what's going on. And we had an, we had it a we had a SEL impromptu lesson. Sure. Right? Because now we have SEL in, class, in in schools because we have to be reactionary all the time because we can't ever be proactive and actually care about students. But that's another topic for another day. Yeah, SEL is another. <laughs> it's and it's so it's so insidious because it's like I have to turn my back on my students in order to prove to you, but I want to face my students all the time. I want to talk to them, and until the until you value them the way I value them, until you see them the way I see them. You're never going to see how effective I truly am. Especially in this context where you're trying to get students to turn their cameras on. And I know as teachers, we rely on facial expressions to get a sense of whether or not they understood what we just said. Yeah. That's part of the check for understanding. Right. You go around and you have those kids who are quiet, they're shy, they don't want to admit that they understand what's going on, they'll nod their head, but you can look at them and tell, nah, you don't get what's going on. Let yeah. me run it back and teach it in a different way where you'll be able to receive it. We yeah. can't really make that determination if we're not able to see the facial expressions because now we're not in the brick and mortar anymore. We're right. doing this all virtual. So without that, how can I really know that you understood? I have to yep. wait until I give you that assessment yep. to see whether or not you understood it. So I lose the opportunity to intervene beforehand before I even give you that summative assessment or even a formative assessment, whether it's a quiz yep. or as a ticket, whatever. Right. I lose right. the opportunity. I have had to, you know, use things like Pear Deck, Desmos. So I can give real time feedback and say, okay, here's what I'm seeing here. Here's what I'm seeing here. And even then, right. So I'm talking about encouraging them to put their cameras on by inspiring them, being authentic with them about the moments where I'm frustrated. Like, and I just name for y'all that I am frustrated right now. Right. I, I need, I need some time to just really think and, and pause for a second, right. Modeling that type of vulnerability using Pear Deck to then show them, on the screen, real time. Here's where we're missing it. Here's where we're getting it. Let's adjust our answers now, and all and record the whole lesson, all to still get to the end and have kids just like I have no idea what's going on, right? Like that. And and if an administrator were to see that, and I was supposed to be measured by the same standards as, as if we were in brick and mortar, because that's what a lot of uh, administrators did, I wouldn't be ruled an effective teacher. Even though I the use of technology, even though there were so many checks for understanding, even though I I poured my heart and soul into the lesson, even though I encouraged students to turn on cameras and, and maybe I got four out of my 20 to do so. Right. Like all of those things should count for something. But if you don't see what I see, then you're never going to value what I value. You're right. It's all about the lens that you're using to to make those determinations for sure. But um, I want to go ahead and just 
switch things up a little bit. I want to go back to the beginning of your career, right? Yeah. Because we know who Bobby Morgan is. He yeah. is Mr. Liberation Lab. Yeah. He's all about that free speech, and he has the principles to back it up. I know when I first came into this space, I wasn't the guy that you're talking to right now. Absolutely. I was a guy who was very much compliant to whatever was said to me. I wasn't about rocking the boat, even though I may have seen things that just didn't look right to me. I was pretty much of the mindset that, all right, I need to not do anything to jeopardize my status as a new teacher. So I'm going to keep my mouth shut. I'm going to observe what's going on. And I might even turn a blind eye to things that I know are wrong. Yeah. Because, you know, as a black male teacher, we don't get the nine lives. So, no, sir. So, what I want to know from you is did you enter the space in the same way that I did? And if so, at what point in your career, maybe what year did the paradigm shift happen for you? Yeah. uh, So, when I first came onto the scene in education, I got hired in. Camden, New Jersey, and I was forged in. You're at Camden. Wow. Yeah, man. Say no more. I went to school in Philly. I'm I'm a Temple alum, so I already know about Camden. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. (laughs) And and here's what I learned very quickly. Um, Well, I won't say very quickly. It took me a little while. I was was forged in this. They handed me the Teach Like a Champion book. Doug Lamov, that's the boy. (laughs) I, I read it. I, I said, oh, man, this is this has got to be it. And I went for it because I thought that this was going to be the way that I helped transform kids who look like me. And, and what I didn't realize then, what I could look back now is I was teaching them how to acquiesce all of who they are. So they appealed to whiteness. Mm. I put them in the most compromising situations because what they were trying to do was express themselves. What they were trying to do was uh, tell me how inequitable things were. And because I didn't have a lens to see it, I tried to beat them into submission. Go outside and write a reflection. Here's a deduction. Here's all these different punitive measures and exclusionary practices that are going to put them out. And I did all of those things in hopes that I was really making a difference, not knowing that I was the oppressor. And so it wasn't until two years later, I'd say, um, we'd, you know, had Trayvon Martin. Mm. We had um, just this uprising of. And Trayvon, Trayvon's situation broke me in ways that I, just seeing the the reactions of people who I thought differently about, mm. it just showed me so much. And then I started realizing, man, well, how many times have I told a kid, take off your hood? Wow. How many times have I followed a kid down the hallway because this was the standard and protocol that I was told to 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 that was acceptable that I that this is how we show forth our respect for ourselves and each other and I and I did the, exactly the same thing and and 
And realizing that I was the oppressor really put me in a position where I had to do a lot of unlearning. Oh, my goodness. Um, so I would transition to uh, another school right after that. So my first two years were in Camden. And then after that, I went to my alma mater in Pemberton, New Jersey. And I started finding my voice. But when you find your voice as a black male educator, you realize there's not a lot of room for you in spaces where they want conformity. Talk about it. My highest ethic isn't going to be conformity, but if you really want empowerment, if you really want change, if you really want, um, you know, a student focused educator, then I'm the person for you. But I'm not going to accept at this point right now. I am 12 years in. Right. I And it took me at least four years in for me to really find my voice and understand where I needed to be and what things I wanted to to, to stand for. And so Liberation Lab, as it stands, came from understanding that I, I, I wasn't that from the, from the beginning. I was the person that was literally the gatekeeper, <laughs> literally the oppressor. And it just so happened that I looked like the students, which made it worse. Mm. Wow. So they wanted me to, to be the person that would be the liberator. They wanted they wanted. Harriet Tubman. But what they got was Samuel Jackson from Django. Dang. <laughs> and so I had to, I had to unlearn, man. I had to, and, and to the point where those students have since graduated college, which is crazy to say, because I just feel old saying that, but they have graduated college and I've had to go back and talk to them and apologize for things that I said and did. And they look at they look back and they're like, no, like I. I remember I remember a lot of the things that you did do that helped me. And so there was a lot of grace. The kids will give you grace that I just man, because when I look back, if I could have a conversation with me during I I would probably have some very choice words for the stuff that I was doing and the things that I was about. Um, So, yeah, I think that. That if, if there is any educator who would listen to this and say, man, you know what? I don't know that I'm really about, you know, liberation. I don't know that, um, you know, I'm learning and I don't know where I really fit in. Listen, I would say that we all have to do and continuously go back to what is it that I need to learn? What is it that I need to grow? And how do I need to unlearn? Mm-hmm. That your voice Finding your voice is a process and you're going to mess up a thousand and one times. Yeah, for sure. But at the end of it, there is there is growth, there is development and there's liberation. Yeah. And then with liberation, how can we liberate our students when we ourselves are still in bondage? Yes, mentally. Yes, I got to a point in my career where I knew that things were effed up for my students. Yeah but I still didn't have the courage or the fortitude to say that out loud to the people yeah. who needed to hear it because I was still fearful of my job security. Mm-mm-mm. But that's because I didn't know how to navigate the system. Yeah. I didn't know the ins and outs. And I think that's where a lot of us start when we get into this space. We come in, not gun hole, but more like, okay, let me just stay in my place and do what I need to do. Right. Put your head down and get to work. Put my head down and just work, work, work. Yeah. And not see what's happening. Yeah. 
But I think what I find amazing about the teacher influencer space that we're both in is the fact that more and more teachers are finding their voice Mm. earlier in their careers. They're building their platforms, but they also peep game too as to what goes on within their school communities. And I didn't have that back in 2009, 2010, when I started teaching uh, full time. I didn't have that. It wasn't until later on when I realized the power of this space. So I want to talk about that for a little bit. So you're fairly new to it, even though you seem like a seasoned veteran. Just every time I watch, you're just so comfortable in your skin. I want to know from you, what are your thoughts about the teacher influencer space? And I want to also talk about what I see as far as the racist gatekeeping Mm. that happens for educators like ourselves who speak out against racism and white supremacy. Yeah. Right. And it also includes some of our white allies and co-conspirators, but really it's black and brown teachers like ourselves who are speaking out about these things. Yeah. And we end up getting shut out of uh, different communities and spaces virtually. Mm -hmm. So talk to me about your experience within the space and just, the gatekeeping issue as a whole. Yeah, I think it's it's a very very interesting because so like I said, uh, I I didn't step into to this teachergram space until uh, Rakim told me it was January thirtieth, and literally the only reason I did at first was because uh, Rakim Jenkins, insightful teacher, like he was like, no, you need to do this, like, and he was encouraging me and really pushed me forward in the work. And so as a new person, I came on and and I am really about collaboration. Like I want to put everybody on. If, yeah. if if there's some place where I have some type of influence and I know you're the person for the job, I want to I want to put you there or and vice versa. And I feel like there's so much here where we could all eat. And I'm finding that there are pockets in these spaces where people feel like no, this is mine. Mm-hmm. And if you intrude, then we're going to distance ourselves or we're not going to associate or we're not even really like, we'll just be silent about the good stuff you're doing. Right. And I think that that's, I think it's deeply problematic because it, it's almost like capitalism by another name. Right. Like, right. So I'm going to hold people down so I can continue to stay up and I'm going to while doing so, have a social platform that may even appear differently. And I, I just, I feel like I love the teacher grant space. Let me be, let me preface it. I love it because it affords us the opportunity to have candid conversations and to and to wield whatever influence that we've been given in a way that helps push things forward. If we're not careful, then we will fall into it being a trendy and marketable space and we'll miss out on it being a a platform for true liberation, right? Like if we get into it and we allow the dollars and, 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 and the, and the things that can happen as a result to affect us, then, then we'll sell out and we'll miss the, the bigger picture. And so I always want to, I always want to come back to the main thing, 
and I want to ask myself questions, heart level questions. Why am I doing what am I doing? What I'm doing is what's the motivating factor? Do I feel like I need to be out front, or do mm-hmm. I feel like my passion for for this is is what's pushing me forward? Right, and I think if we ask ourselves these heart level questions, we really come back to those things. Then we will see. Um, Maybe there's some areas where we need to 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 leverage others, and maybe there's some areas where we need to um, step back and let others shine, and and so we can all step into the spaces that you know are most effective. So that because I and this is this, this is the thing that really gets me is liberation is a team sport. Yes, it is. And so I need thinkers, people who think like me, and people who don't think like me. I need people who are going to push my level of understanding. I need people who are going to say, but have you read this? And matter of fact, let's read it together and let's talk about it so we can help you grow and you can help me grow. Like I need that type of community that will value because we can't just be pro-black, pro-brown when it thinks like, acts like, votes like me. If I'm really going to be pro-black, I'm really going to be pro-black and pro-brown. I want, I want my LGBTQ community. I want, I want the people who who vote Republican, my conservative people. I, I, I want them all because if we're really going to say that black isn't a monolith, then we got to cherish all forms of blackness, and, and I mean that on both sides. Yes, right? I'm talking about my conservative friends who would say, oh, you're a liberal snowflake and you care all your social justice where will stop. First of all, stop with the name call and get to know me. Right. Because all you're doing is spouting off what Tucker Carlson said on Fox News and you're not really getting to know me. For real. Yeah. Right. And at this and what I can promise to my conservative friends is I'm not just going to go on and tell you what Don Lemon said. I'm not just going <laughs> to go and tell you what Jake Tapper said. Yeah. Right. I'm going to research and ask questions. And I think if we do that, we can find out that there's more that unites us than separates us. And we really are after some similar things. No, I agree with all that. And when you mentioned that part about this influencer space being trendy. Yeah. And like a marketing tool. Yeah. It reminds me of a post you just did. Um, yeah, it's, I don't know if it was today or the other day, but this is your most recent post. Yeah. And you mentioned this, and I'm going to read this. Honest conversation needs to happen about how quickly allyship turns to appropriation. That, yeah. my brother, is powerful. And you were actually alluding to that just right now. We are yeah. talking about how anti-racism and social justice has become this trendy co-opted space where yeah. everybody is capitalizing off of it. Yeah. And not really reinvesting in the very communities that they are talking about on their platform. So let's talk about that for a little bit. Sure. So when you say we talk about allyship turning into appropriation, I have a sense of what you mean, but for our listeners and viewers who are tuning into this. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Sure, sure, sure. So when I say allyship, I know that there's been this spectrum created where allyship should be moving towards co-conspirator. And I and I I totally get that. When I say allyship, I mean the whole gamut, right? 
if you're really going to be my ally, you're going to be in the trenches with me. You're going to fight my fight. You're going to be like, that's how I view it. Right. And so what I'm seeing happen is because of how marketable these spaces have become, because if you can say certain things in a certain way and then you can slap it on a T-shirt, now people want to buy it. Right. Right. And so I have seen people, allies, white allies in particular, who have, and it's, it's even happened to me. You come on to the show, you listen, you take an idea, a thought, intellectual property, you run with it. You might put a little bit of a spin on it, but we know where it came from. Mm. And then you go ahead and try to profit off of it. So my, my thing isn't like, you want to get money? Go ahead and get money. But don't do it off my back. Yes. And don't do it in spaces where, for me, this is life or death. For me, this is about students who look like me. For me, this is about something that I'm deeply committed to. So where, so, so, and I mean this, if there weren't a teacher gram space, I'd still be doing the same thing, right? Like I'd still be committed to this. Mm -hmm. And so for you, it may be a trend or it may be a, uh, something that will come and go. But for me, this is a way of life. Right. And so I think that when I say allyship turns into appropriation, I have at least three occurrences where I have seen people take their merchandise, play songs that are inherently part of black culture, show their shirts and say things like drip like me. Oh gosh. And I'm like, you don't talk like that. That's not inherently you. That's not who you even showed up as. Exactly. So don't try to make money off of something that you think is marketable and, and then not be authentic to yourself because it's no different than, you know, what's happened historically, right? Blackness is only endeared as long as it's profitable. And so when I can make money off of blackness, then, yeah, I'll sign whoever to my record label because they're going to sell these CDs or I'll hire this person to act, you know, this part in this show because it's really going to sell for me. But at the end of the day, I don't really care because it's not like I'm going to reinvest that money into those communities. I'm not going to speak out about the injustices in those communities. I want to say buy my shirt. But no, I, I want everything I do to fuel the liberation movement for the folks who are on the margins. Hmm. And sure, will it profit me some? Sure. But I will take what I make. Yes, I will provide for my family, right? There's a tension there. But I will reinvest because I want to see us win. Hey, and if your heart isn't for the collective and your heart is about the individual, then you've sunken into white supremacy. Mm-hmm. And I want to touch on that a little bit more because I wonder what is the litmus test mm. for determining whether or not a white person is a true ally. Mm. Like it's really hard to determine that in the very beginning because you won't know until you won't know because it takes time. Yeah. You got to see how they move over an extended period of time. Yeah. Before you can make that determination. It's not so that you'll be able to see instantaneously, right? And I think that's one of the issues with 
this whole movement is, you know, we I had uh, Dr. Bree Picaro on the show. Uh, yeah. I'm a good friend of mine. And you had the luxury of having her for the uh, liberation, uh, you know, book club. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and even like you said, like she's a great example because she I I stated that I would not have picked the book up and I would not have bought it because I have seen white people write about these issues because it's profitable. And then they make a whole bunch of money off of something that a black woman usually has said before. All right. Uh, so yeah. like, so like Robin D and uh, <laughs> talking, <laughs> talking about white fragility, but like, and nice racism. She got the new one. Out. Nice, new racism. One. nice racism. And it's like one, those concepts and ideas didn't originate with you, but because Come you on. are a white woman saying it, you now make money off of these things. When I got, you know, people who, you know, on our side, you know, I, I got her, her name escapes you now, but she's the creator of the 1619 project. She just won tenure at North Carolina. Nicole Hannah Jones. Shout Thank out to Nicole you so Hannah much. Jones. Nicole Hannah Jones just yeah. won uh, tenure. She had a whole like long drawn out process. And it's like, seriously, this is what we do to black women. Like, yeah. Like their names will be erased from the history books, but we'll count on them again and again and again to be superwoman and show up and take a whole state and flip it. And we'll say, thank you so much for your contributions on to the next one. Right. Like it is, it is insidious. At the same time, I think going back to Dr. Reaper Cower, what I loved about it is that all of her proceeds benefit black women. Right. That's the and that's and that's my whole point. And sh- when I had her on the podcast a few weeks ago, no, a few months ago actually, and yeah. make sure y'all check out that episode. It's a really powerful one. Um, shameless plug. Okay, <laughs> yes, sir. She was talking about this issue because I asked her this question specifically. Right? How do you use your positionality as a white woman in this anti-racist space? to reinvest or to give back to black and brown communities. And she gives her proceeds to two organizations, yep. the abolitionist teachers network, which we know is led by Dr. Dr. Tina Love. Love. Shout out to and the, her. Yes, exactly. Big shout out to her and the education for liberation network. Mm-hmm. Two Nonprofit organizations led by black and brown people. Yes. All proceeds go there. So now we talk about Robin D'Angelo. Here's what I'm going to say about this because I've been very vocal about this in posts and even in previous episodes. Yeah. Right. People who have been following me on IG, they know where I stand on this. As far as the information that she shares in White Fragility, and I'm going to be honest, it's a book that I've actually recommended to people. Yeah. Right? Even Nice Racism is a book that I would recommend specifically to white folks. Mm-hmm. And here's why. It's because there are people who are oblivious to yeah. what's going on. Yeah. You want, you want an introductory point into this work? 
she is a good person to go to mm-hmm. because she is speaking to white people. She yep. writes in the white gaze. Yep. So everything that she writes is through the perspective of white people. Yep. So they can understand how we feel. So there is room for that type of scholarship in this space. I want to make it very clear. My whole thing is, and I don't know her personally. Yep. I would love to interview her one day to ask this question, but knowing that you're capitalizing off of black and brown scholarship, yep. and you can pretty much go back to the notes in any of her books, you'll see who she's quoting, yep. the sources, and everything else. And more people should do that because those are the books you should be reading. Those are the publications you should be reading. Yep. (laughs) Right. A lot of those people never got a chance to profit off of their hard work. Absolutely. Right. For whatever reason, a lot of, a lot of our greatest scholars didn't get their full financial potential. Yeah. When they were alive and she's able to capitalize off of that. So, my whole thing is if you're going to be quoting black and brown scholars, even some of our indigenous scholars and other scholars of color. Yeah. At the very least, you should be able to allocate a portion of your royalties to black and brown communities, to black and brown organizations. That's all I'm saying. She would say she does. I ain't, ain't got to be 100%. 50% just a portion right I think it's also to your point not just the reinvesting of the financial gain but reinvest the uh, the ways in which people look to you as that person to 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 speak to certain issues right so when they come to you and they say you know please come and speak on these issues why not redirect them to the people you cited? Why not say, hey, you really should have this person on, right? Why not say, you know, uh, and and why not say instead of it just being me, hey, as a stipulation for, for me coming, I know you really want me, we need to bring this person, right? Divesting of the power that you have in this area for whatever reason, and then putting other people on as a result, right? I think that that that's a big, big part of it. And I mean, I've seen her on several places talking about how she coined that term. And I'm like, but that that was there before you. Like it was there. And so. Yeah, man, I think there's so much to say there. (laughs) it, It was there. Yeah. But as far as the terminology. Yeah. She may have created a terminology. But it's always been there. Even with nice racism, which I personally have a problem with the title because of the oxymoronic nature of it. Absolutely. Kind of like in the same way that I have a problem with restorative justice. How do you restore justice that we've never earned as black and brown people? That's like my it's a semantics no, argument. It. It's a semantics no, argument. I get it. That makes sense. Yeah. Even with nice racism. Ain't nothing nice about being oppressed. 
and having to navigate a society where everything is rooted in whiteness. Yeah. Nothing nice about that. But I understand the premise of the title because the subtitle is how progressive white people perpetuate racial harm, which I totally agree with. It does happen. I've seen it. Different monsters, same teeth. Or excuse me, same monster, different teeth. That that the the liberal monster will say, "Shh, let me. I know your oppression. Let me let me speak for you. I know that you're oppressed. No, no, no. Don't speak. I have you. I understand. Here, let me hug you. And then I'm going to speak for you. And then I'm going to leverage all these things on your behalf because I care. And meanwhile, it's just it's just it's a very, you know." I stand on the shoulders of, of 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 Malcolm X, you know, who who spoke passionately in this area. Uh, Martin Luther King, who talked about the white moderate, mm. who you know, in his letter uh, from a Birmingham jail, right? I, I, so this has been going on for so long, and it's just it's just another iteration of the same thing. Yeah, and, and I think I, I say this, and I know you want to you want to move. I I think as it pertains to you know, uh, the use of terminology, the use of uh, coining a term or things like that. I think a statement about the work you do is how others are benefiting as a result of that work, right? It is, you know, to, to use a sports analogy, it is the difference between uh, let's say, you know, LeBron and 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 Jordan, right? We're not gonna talk about the goat debate. I'm not gonna have that right now. <laughs> but at the, but what I will say is, the ways in which they pursued greatness is 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 different, right? You saw it with the Last Dance. He 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 was like, listen, I took that personally, and I was coming for you. He had a killer instinct. Ain't nobody ever gonna debate that. But you know how many people were made better because LeBron was on their team? Like, I mean, mediocre in terms of NBA standards, right? I know who Daniel Booby Gibson is because of LeBron. <laughs> I know uh, who, you know, uh, was it Damon West? I know who he is. I know Delonte, excuse me, Delonte West. I know who he is. I, there are people who I know of because of how LeBron made them better in the time that they were. He was there. Sure. His respective teams. And I feel like to use the analogy that if you are in this space for the liberation of, you know, black and brown people and you're a white person, um, then you need to have a LeBron effect. I need to see how so many other people are put on and are seen and are more visible because you were there. And if that's not what's happening, then you, you you're choosing the profit and. You know, you're profiting off of the backs of people who need to be centered. Right. And we've been fortunate to be in community with some, you know, dope educators, white educators who are really about that business. Yeah. And, you know, they do the work. So I just want to shout out a few. They're alive, but I want to shout out a few that just come to mind. Uh, my man, uh, Ben Brown. Ben Brown. Yes, ben Brown. My guy, Ben. Um, Sarah Bagwin, yeah, aka Education with a Purpose. So these yeah. are just a couple of folks who are about that life. And of course, I can't 
I'd be remiss if I didn't mention uh, Dr. Kate Slater. Dr. Kate Slater. Um, yeah. Shout out to all of them. So these are just people who are leading the way as far as how to be that co-conspirator and they're consistent. And Ooh. they're humble. They humble. I, I think, um, so I want to I wanna shout out, uh, this isn't this is kind of a to a previous question you said about the litmus test. I want to shout out uh, disrupting norms on Instagram. Uh, she reposted that same quote that you have about honest conversation. Yep, I saw that. And she put down these great, great questions. And I want to just I want to shout her out, Livia, um, at uh, disrupting norms on Instagram. She says, honest inquiry might sound like number one. How do I benefit from this? Likes, comments, sponsorships, contracts, praise, the appearance of wokeness, etc. Number two, am I borrowing heavily from the words, actions, images, and deeds of people who are not in my community? Number three, whose voice is lessened while mine is amplified? Number four, what is the possibility that my actions are deemed more palatable directly because of white supremacist delusion? Mm-hmm. Number five, what evidence can I provide that this action benefits marginalized communities? And wow. I think if we just shout out to her, because that that whole framework, if we were to ask ourselves those questions, there it is. We would be able, uh, I think, to to peer through, um, you know, any type of delusion we might have about the effort that we're making and who's benefiting from it. So, yeah, shout out to her. But this is what being in this influencer space is all about. It's about collaboration. Yeah. Over competition. Yeah. Right? She did not have to do that. She did it out of the goodness of her heart because she saw that you were putting out some value into mm-hmm. the space and she wanted to support you. Yeah. Yeah. See, yeah. that that's what liberation work is all about. Absolutely. That's what anti-racist solidarity is all about. Yeah. Right. And and I do want to ask you this question before uh, we move into the lightning round. What do you believe are the roadblocks that are preventing us from having that anti-racist solidarity amongst us educators? What are those roadblocks that you see in our way right now? So I've been doing a lot of thinking, uh, here recently of the the collective healing that needs to take place for mm-hmm. black and brown people, especially educators who are doing this work, because I think that there are ways in which if we don't heal, that we won't really run and 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 take this thing on all cylinders because we're 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 kind of driving on a broken engine. Right. Um and some of them we've mentioned already, right, is is if we're truly going to be pro-black, then we need to be pro-black for for people who don't think like us, right, for all of us, for the collective. Yeah. That means we got to do battle with colorism. That means we really got to put it to put it to death between us. Right. Um, the 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 ways in which while we can grapple with the nuances of how fairer skinned People will, you know, benefit from whiteness and things like that. But we we don't get to write. We don't get the right because of what's happened to us. 
to then turn around and lord blackness over people. You're not black enough. You don't get you don't know what the black experience is like. And it's like, okay, wait a minute. One, if blackness isn't a monolith, then what black experience are you referring to? Right? There are there are variations of it. What does that mean? What does it mean to be black? I feel what, like we have to What's the criteria? How do you characterize blackness? Yes. And and so are we putting it on a scale now? Are we right? And so I just feel like we have to grapple with it because while we are sitting there having those conversations and fighting with one another, white supremacy laughs. Right? Are they know people who ascribe to white supremacy, right? They know that if we unite, that if there is a collective, that if we are about the progress of every single one of us, they know the number's up. Right. And the only way that white supremacy thrives is because of our division. And so we have to do the work of putting to death colorism. We have to we have to heal from the ways that the uh, beauty standards, European beauty standards, right for our for our queens, right. Um, we have to heal from uh, the the ways in which we lord one method of healing over another. What I mean is, so we'll say you should wear your hair natural, right? Who taught you to hate yourself? I love you know Malcolm X, and I'm like, you should be free to be your authentic self. So if that means you want to wear it this way, that means you want to wear it that way cool, let's work together to build something new now, right? Because much much of what we do here is, is it doesn't have definitions yet because it hasn't been built. There has There is no way forward for true liberation because we haven't seen it yet. So let's imagine and dream something bigger. And that's going to take all of us. I can't do it by myself. I need people pushing me. I need people challenging me. I need people who look me in the eye and who aren't impressed by me and will say, yo, you probably blew it here. And you probably should think about some things. Let me give you some books. Let's read together. Let's understand. Let's unpack. Right. And I think if we can do that, we, we you know, it's, it's what I said with uh, when we were talking to, to Chevy is we got to be on that that big mom from from soul food. We got to band together, yeah. put the and strike a mighty blow. When we do that, man. The stuff we could do. We got to be uh, the little boy. The little boy who brought the whole family together and sold food. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's what I'm trying to do. No, no, no. <laughs> come in here. Sit down. You know, I, I don't care what it takes. I need y'all to come together because I need all of us. I need us. I really right. do. And I don't know. I think Rakim mentioned this and I want, I'm not going to butcher, you know, <laughs> his quotables because he has so many of them but he basically does, does, basically the light work one basically the more people that are doing this work the easier it's going to be for all of us the more we alleviate that workload off of each of us individually yeah. but we have more people involved so we know that racial bad fatigue is inevitable yes sir if we're doing the work the right way we're going to experience the racial bad fatigue it's not avoidable, right? So we need people to be in this work. We got to do it together because in the, at the end of the day, cancel culture is antithetical to anti-racist solidarity. Yeah. 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 And I mean, what would it look like if, 
I'm dealing with racial battle fatigue and I can't do X, Y, and Z, but I said, yo, I know somebody who would be so good for what you're doing. Let me recommend Kwame to you. Right. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling and, and Kwame struggling. And this and that. I, I got these three things that I need to be doing. Let me give one to, to, to Rakim. Let me give, let me give one to, to Deidre. Let me give, let me give one to Bobby. Let me give one to, to Shivy, whoever the, the people are, insert name here. Let me, but what if we actually looked out for one another in that way, because the work is bigger than any one of us. Right. Um, and that's the thing that keeps me coming back is at the end of the day, despite the things that I may experience and the fatigue that I feel, the work is bigger and it's worth it. There it is. There it is, man. And we, we could talk about this all day, brother. I could just talk to you all day. You already <laughs> know how we do. You yes, already know, but let's shift gears to lightning round. As right. we close things out. So these are just quick hitters. Okay. Uh, just so that people can get to know a little bit about you outside the classroom. Sure. Uh, first question I'd like to ask everybody is how are you doing self-care these days? How are you exercising self-care? Really, man, my family keeps me grounded. Right. My kids don't, you know, they're not impressed by me. They they want daddy. Right. Yeah. And so I get the the opportunity to just be crazy, to be silly to 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 show radical love you know one thing i always say to my kids is there is nothing that you can do to make me not love you i will always love you right and get to express that and get to be the father i never had so uh that and just being a loving husband man trying to to do the best i can to be the to be who you know i need to be for my family and uh and then also for me, it's it's books, man. It's books. It's time to just sit and relax and get my mind off of things. Um, so reading and just being a husband and father really helped me at this time. Uh, for real. I hear that. And speaking of books, is there a book that you're currently reading or you plan on reading this summer? You want to name a few of those titles? Sure, sure. So on my summer reading list is uh, The Drop Rule. Dr. Yabba Bay, uh, Blay, I think it was, uh, one drop roll. Uh, so I want to read that, that I just actually just ordered that off of, uh, shout out to Yadi, Yadi Mercedes on, uh, on Instagram. Uh, After that live, it just sent me in a place where I just needed to really unpack a few things. And so uh, I have that on the way. Uh, Dr. Howard Jennings has a book on equity in the classroom. Um, how to achieve equity. I'm reading that. And uh, next after that, I think I'll probably dive into um, some of Dr. Claude Anderson's books on uh, powernomics. Powernomics. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to dive into that next. So those are three that are up. Um, And just like I said, man, those books really helped me. I'm looking at them right now. That's why I'm looking over here Um, and and kind of keep my mind groomed on some things. And I think for me too is is keeping my mind sharp because I want to again take what I've learned, take what I grow in, and pour it back into our community so we can do this collective work. Yeah, and shout out to Dr. Yaba Blay, uh, Temple alum. She did a doctorate there. So, matter of fact, she was on Temple campus when I was doing my undergrad. So I remember seeing Dr. Yaba Blay on campus. So she's been a truth for a long time. So shout yeah. out to her. Yeah, man, that that yeah. she she had 
so many things that she said that just hit me right between the eyes. And I was like, oh, my goodness, I really need to grapple with this. And she asked insightful questions and she was honest and real and man. Yeah. So I'm definitely going to read and I'm excited for whenever her next book comes out on, on colorism. That's going to be. Um, yeah. Oh, man, that book list keeps on growing. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. All right. If you can invite three people to dinner, dead or alive, who would they be? Wow. Uh, three people to dinner. I think I would choose. First person I would choose is. Um, God, why am I blanking on his name? He's like my hero. Hold on. I'm about to I'm about to tell you right now. Uh, take your time, brother. Take your time. Um, James Baldwin. First person I'm inviting is James Baldwin. Yeah, like when I tell you anything I can get my hands on, James Baldwin, I read, I listen to his talk for teachers, to teachers. Oh my gosh. Seminal piece. Everybody should read that. Yes. Talk to teachers. Yes. Uh, so James Baldwin would be my number one. Um, after James Baldwin, I probably would talk to Fannie Lou Hamer. Um, sick and tired of being sick and tired. tired. Yes, yes. <laughs> just the ways in which she led liberation from old, from just and and the stuff that she went through. Right. To have that type of resilience, I would love to just sit down and have dinner with her and talk about that. And um, honestly, the last the last person, hopefully this isn't breaking the rules too much. The last person. So part of my story is I was adopted. Mm -hmm. And so I don't really know my parents. But if I could, I would invite them to dinner just to talk to them. So we'll slide that extra chair. Okay. In there, no doubt. And then last question. Who do you have for the NBA finals? You got Bucks or Suns? Who you got? Suns and six. Suns and six. Uh the reason I say the Suns and Six is we don't know uh how like the Suns are fully loaded. They have a whole they have their whole team yeah. now. And so with uh Giannis having his hyperextended knee, we don't know how long that's gonna take. Um and so I say Suns and Six because I think they probably take one in Phoenix um, and they'll probably push. I take one at home, one in Phoenix, and I think it'll push it to six. But I think the I think the Suns will get it. I think CP3 gets his first championship this year. Yeah, I'm rooting for Chris Paul myself. I'm rooting for him. He, he yeah. deserves it. Yeah. Uh, I like Giannis too, but he's young. He's got he's young. a lot of years. He's got a lot more years. Yeah. So – and I know the Milwaukee's going to be in the conversation for years to come. They just yeah. have a, a pretty stacked team. They do. They do. Yeah. They're oh, going to be contending with the, the Nets for at least the next two to three years. Well, they least. should. Yeah, they should. Um, It'll definitely be a, a rivalry for sure yeah. if they can keep those players together. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, man. But, brother, Bobby, thank you so much for getting on the podcast. It's been a pleasure for me. But before you roll out, 
if you could just let people know how they can follow you on social media and support what you're doing. And also let us know what's coming up for you because you got a lot of cool things going on. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. First of all, thank you so much for having me, man. It's an honor uh, to share space with you, to have these conversations. Um, Like I said, from day one, you were one of the first people to like embrace me. And uh, so I really appreciate that. Something I'll never forget. Um, As far as following me, uh, follow me at, at liberation.lab on Instagram. Have it there in the title. Um, uh, you can do that also on Facebook. I, I post both places. Um, what's coming up? I'm going to be doing um, a class before the school year. I don't have an exact date yet because I want to get, like, I really want to make sure it's a value add, right? On culturally sustaining pedagogy, right? So we talk about it, and like we said, all the technical terms, but basically how do we, how do we as teachers access and leverage the indigenous experiences of our, of our teachers? I mean, excuse me, of our students to further learning in the classroom. And what does that really look like for us? You may get you Django Paris. <laughs> <laughs> I need to read that book too. That's another book that I still need to read. That's just, yeah, that that's on. I I just you. ordered it. I just ordered it yesterday. You just ordered it, okay? All right, it's on the way. The, okay. I ordered that. I ordered. Um, I ordered Doctor Yabablay, and uh, I ordered a a third one on uh, just equity in the classroom. And so, yeah, man, I'm going to be diving into all those and uh, putting out some good content. So it's a value add for the community. I do a one day class, probably a couple hours, maybe. And just have people come in, leave us some resources to just gear up for us going back to school. See, man, that's why that's why you the good brother, man. <laughs> that's why you the good brother. Um, also, people, make sure y'all check out Bobby on Instagram. He does his weekly IG live series, free speech. So let them know about free speech. Yeah, man. Every Wednesday, 8 p.m. Tap in with me um, on Instagram. Just I've had some dope guests. Um, I think being able to learn from and ask questions uh, really helps me as well. And so uh, every Wednesday, this Wednesday, I have the pleasure of interviewing uh, Clemente Hall. Uh, You know him on Instagram as Mr. Clementine Teach. He's a dope educator. He's He's in kindergarten. Kindergarten. And so we're going to talk about what it looks like for black men to lead in early childhood. And uh, so that's going to be a real good conversation. So tap in with me this this Wednesday and every Wednesday. Um, you know, by the time you see it, we'll probably have some new guests on. Kwame is going to be on. And so definitely tap in every Wednesday, at 8 p.m. Yes, it is an incredible series and Make sure you go on his IGTV to catch up on previous episodes because there there have been a lot of powerful people who have come on and just spread love and just shared some gems along the way. So make sure y'all catch up with the previous episodes. But Bobby, thank you again, brother. And this will not be the last of our conversations. I know that for a fact. So let's do this again soon. Thank you again for having me, brother. I appreciate you. Uh, Yes, sir. All right. Have a good one. All right, good people. We're about to wrap up another incredible episode of Our Day Talk Educators Live. And as I always tell you all, I wish you all good morning, good night, good afternoon, wherever you are in the world. And we're going to do this again another time. Peace out, everybody. 
Thank you for listening to the Identity Talk for Educators Live podcast. Make sure to follow us on Instagram with the handle at Identity Talk for Educators Live. And that's a numeral four in the middle. You can also subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and all other streaming platforms. We're always striving to provide you with quality content. So if you love what you heard tonight, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And to check out the video episodes of the podcast, you can visit our website at www.identitytalkforeducators.com. Thank you and have a great day.